You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. Shareholder activists have called on Sassel to table a climate-related resolution at its upcoming AGM, heaping pressure on one of the country's biggest emitters of greenhouse gases to play a bigger role in curbing global warming. Non-profit companies Just Share and the Wraith Foundation this week co-filed a shareholder resolution for consideration at the meeting. That's scheduled for the 20th of November. Sassel is South Africa's second biggest producer of greenhouse gases after state power utility ESCOM. Secunda, which supplies about a third of the motor fuel produced in South Africa, is the world's biggest single-site emitter of the pollutants. This comes as the looming carbon tax edges ever closer in South Africa. The carbon tax was implemented on the 1st of June last year, and the deadline for paying the carbon tax uh, for the 1st of June to the 31st of December period is at the end of this month. So uh, that's the 30th of October. South Africa is ranked uh, among the top 15 emitters of greenhouse gas emissions per capita in the world, making the country the most uh, polluting non-oil producing nation. But questions are being raised about the imposition of this tax against the backdrop of South Africa's COVID weakened economy. A new book has just been published to help guide you through the carbon tax maze, a concise guide. It's called uh, and it is concise at 100 pages. I'm joined now by the three authors, Andrew Gilder, long-standing private sector climate change and carbon markets lawyer and director of Climate Legal. Climate Legal was a specialist external climate change legal counsel to the department on the climate change bill of 2018. Olivia Rumble, director at Climate Legal and Mansoor Parker, executive at ENS Africa in the tax department and specialist in corporate tax, energy tax, sports and international tax. Andrew, what is the overarching purpose of the concise guide and uh, why was it published now? Well, thanks very Michael for the opportunity. In fact, so the answer to your question is embedded in your initial comments. You mentioned a maze of, of um, regulation and legislation that has emerged over the last period of time. And in order to find yourself your way through that maze, um, the concise guide is there as a, as a marker, if you like. Um, the carbon tax has been in development literally for the last 14 years or the last 12 years, depending on who you want to talk to, the most prolific period of production of documentation and instrumentation related to the carbon tax has been in the period since the beginning of June in 2019, including a rash of documentation that came out literally up until the 16th of September. We were very cognizant of the fact that the manner in which that material was being published by SARS and by Treasury was in a very piecemeal fashion, and that it was quite difficult to understand how all of the different documentation and all of the obligations fitted together. So the the purpose of the concise guide is to put in one place a simple, as simple as possible, and explanation of the processes that one will need to go through in order to determine and pay a carbon tax liability but more importantly it is also a single source to access all of the documentation and instrumentation that has been published um, and upon which is based the obligation around carbon tax. Now, Andrew, on this issue of the carbon tax, I've got two headlines here. The one headline screams uh, that carbon tax will curtail industry and cause job losses. The other foghorns that the tax is uh, gift-wrapped for big emitters. At last, South Africa is getting a week 
carbon tax. So one gets the sense that uh, when both parties are equally miffed, that the policymakers have done a pretty good job in balancing the various trade-offs. Uh, would you say that's accurate? Yes, very much so. Uh, um, what's important to understand about the carbon tax, and Treasury has been at pains to make this point over time, is that it is a, um, it is a forward-thinking regulatory regime that absolutely has to be put in place in order to keep this economy um, competitive into the future. But Treasury has also been mindful of um, the, the non-competitive aspects of a carbon tax and the uh, financial burden that it will place on industry, certainly over time. I must say to you that there's a, um, there's a, a moment in the carbon tax where a, a memorandum of Treasury is quoted saying, in essence, it is meant to hurt. Yes, that's why the carbon tax is going to be implemented in order to hurt, but it's not necessarily going to hurt industry now. Why? Because they want to give industry an opportunity to become au fait with how to deal with the carbon tax and to utilize the mechanisms within the regime to manage carbon tax exposure over time. So you're absolutely right. It, it's not pleasing either of those interest groups, which means it's probably dead right. Olivia, Chapter 3 of the Concise Guide analyzes the Carbon Tax Act and includes uh, descriptions of how to calculate a carbon tax liability, some of it fairly complicated. Uh, what was the thinking behind Chapter 3 and, and what can taxpayers really take away from that chapter? Thanks, Michael. Uh, that chapter was drafted by Mansur and myself and I think um, our different backgrounds speak to the, what the chapter tries to achieve. So. Mansur is obviously a tax executive and deeply specialized in all elements of tax. And by background, I'm an environmental lawyer and more of a with administrative law, procedural law, uh, company law, that type of thing. And um, what the carbon tax very much is, is, is a blend of expertise. And it would be very difficult, I think, for an in-house tax council to complete the return without drawing on the blended expertise of a number of different representatives within the firm. You would need your internal SHIC um, person, you would need people dealing with uh, strategy and accounting, that type of thing. And so what it tries to do is to unpack the detailed formula within the Act, and, and they're brutally long. They are um, formula within formula, and, and to give case-by-case -case examples of how one might complete a return. And uh, the intention or the way that it's drafted is is to try and speak to all the different disciplines who need to understand the tax um, and to work together with each other. I'll be very honest with you, it's the first time I've ever, since my economics degree, had to unpack a formula <laughs> as a lawyer. And it was incredibly daunting and, and, it's, and it's meant to speak to exactly sort of environmental legal practitioners like myself mm, who mm. would need to be familiar with that type of thing. Um, and it's quite interesting, or I enjoyed drafting it because I think South Africa is moving more and more towards these type of market-based instruments, um, waste discharge charge systems for water, and levies on waste uh, or, or, or landfill disposal. Um, and this is an incredibly sophisticated example of how we might apply that type of um, environmental pricing. Um, and I think mm. if if we can get companies or um, academia, everyone on board with how the nitty-gritty of that pricing works, um, we will be well-placed for further types of new instruments as they come online. 
um, over the next five to ten years. Mansa, on that point, or on chapter three, I felt like I was sitting in front of a, a CFA textbook at, at certain stages with the complexity of some of those formula and calculations. It obviously is very complicated. You, you've done a pretty good job of trying to simplify it and distill it down, though. What was the thinking behind your contribution? I think what we try to achieve is that although the formula is quite long, the entirety of the formula does not necessarily apply to each taxpayer that will be paying the carbon tax. So certain taxpayers might have to apply certain parts of that formula in calculating their, their carbon tax liability. Uh, and they might not have to complete each and every component, although when you look at it, it is quite daunting because it covers all the different types of emissions. Uh, but for certain taxpayers, they might only be limited to a certain type of emission and hence the calculation will focus on that part of the formula. What we sought to do is to convey the point that there's essentially two outcomes that taxpayers should be working towards. Number one is to determine the quantum of the taxable emissions, and number two is to determine the amount of taxes to be paid in respect of those taxable emissions. Now, it's a similar conceptual exercise that corporate taxpayers would do when working out the income tax or capital gains tax liability. The difference here, though, is that the tax base that we are working with is not income gains, it's not capital gains. The tax base that we are working with are greenhouse gas emissions. And what the formula does is it specifies how to go about calculating that base of greenhouse gas emissions on which you will pay the tax. And having calculated that base, it then sets out a series of deductions and allowances which you then have to extract, subtract from that base of emissions. So there's two things you have to do. You have to determine what's in, and once you've determined what's in your calculation, you then have to take what's out by means of your deduction and allowances. And what you are left with is the sliver of your taxable emissions. And those deductions and allowances, they, they perform the, the role of almost tax-free shields, because you will only pay your carbon tax on amounts which exceeds the, the the accumulated deductions and allowances to which you are entitled. So it's only that portion mm. above on which you will pay the 120 rand carbon tax liability per ton of CO2 emission. And that's why we often add, when the tax was introduced, people having the, discussing the statutory rate, 120 rand, and then inserting, but the effective rate might be reduced to 6 to 48 rand per ton. And, and the reason why you'd get this deduction, because the statutory rate doesn't change, but the reason why people were speaking about the effective rate is the impact of the deductions and the allowances. So it's very important for taxpayers to know which ones they would qualify for, and also in filling out the forms, that they fill out the forms correctly, so that they're able to make use of the deductions and allowances uh, for, which, uh, for which they are entitled. And that's basically the scheme of the regime. We've quibbled a little bit about the date. Uh, it said the 31st of October, but it has to effectively be the last working day, which is probably the 30th. Uh, Mansur, uh, what is the final date for submission? It's the penultimate working day of October, so it will be the 30th of October, given that the 31st is the last working day. So it's the penultimate working day, the 30th of October. Right. Uh, and I've heard what, Olivia what we... talk about the 29th, though. I think there was some discussion um, uh, Treasury uh, did a, a roadshow, effectively, a virtual roadshow series of webinars, which are very useful. And I think there were some debates um, in, during the course of that roadshow, uh, particularly around, around that. It, it's worth saying, though, that it's at 3 o'clock on whatever day is the penultimate working day. So let's go with the 30th. Okay. But um, what's important from uh, SARS's perspective 
is that um, the, the, the timing deadline on that date is 3 o'clock in the afternoon, after which penalties are... Right. Uh, that, that, that's why these things are very important. Uh, it's all the devil's mm. in the detail. Mansur, can you just give us an example yes. uh, to your earlier discussion on how mm. to use the allowances and deductions that aren't permitted to reduce your carbon tax liability? Uh, what's a practical example mm. here that, um, mm. that, that mm. you can mm. give to give effect to this? Let's assume that the taxpayer has a tax base of greenhouse gas emissions and it's equal to 1,000. It's a nice round number to work with for the purpose of this uh, example. It then becomes entitled to deductions and allowances equal to 90% of that number. It can claim a basic tax-free allowance equal to 60%. It qualifies for performance allowance, trade exposure allowance, and, and, and some of the remaining allowances as well. And it claims up to 90% um, um, uh, deductions or allowances. It then has remaining emissions of 100, which then become subject to carbon tax. So that 100, you will multiply by the 120 rand per ton of CO2 emissions to get to the amount of tax which you should pay. So the 120 is not multiplied by the 1,000. You're told your gross emissions. Mm. You've got to multiply the carbon tax rate by your net uh, emissions, which is the amount that you arrive at after deducting all of these allowances uh, and deductions. Now, in the first year, as you've said, it's a shortened period, June to December 2019, and the certain aspects of the deductions and allowances, such as the, uh, the, the, the carbon offsets, that taxpayers may not be able to fully claim uh, this time around. Um, but the basic tax-free allowance of 60% would be available to the taxpayers to claim. And that's basically the process that they would do. Well, what taxpayers would do is they would look at the final number, the amount of taxes to be paid, and then do a bit of a sensitivity analysis they'd say, well, if we push for another allowance, how much do we stand to save in taxes payable and how much would it cost us to obtain that allowance? So they do a bit of a cost-benefit type of analysis uh, at this point and then decide whether to pursue the allowance. In future, as the rate of carbon tax ramps up, that sort of analysis will become very important for taxpayers uh, to perform when, when doing these calculations. Then you're going to see the value of carbon offsets coming through as a way to reduce uh, carbon tax liabilities. On that issue of the way um, this carbon tax could ramp up, uh, Andrew, uh, do we have clarity on the phase two price? Uh, and I'm sure you'll be sympathetic to the fact that mining projects, for example, are very capital intensive. And while at 120 Rand a ton, um, it, it's easy to plan and model and forecast. Uh, some mining companies are saying, well, we don't know what the, uh, the carbon price will be 10, 15 years into the future. And that makes uh, putting a bankable feasibility plan together very, very difficult. Do we know what that glide path is going to look like? Absolutely. I mean, Section 15, I think, of my colleagues um, is very clear. The, the tax increases year on year for the first phase of the tax. So that's up until the end of 22 at CPI plus two and thereafter at CPI. Um, so we, we know the trajectory of the tax right up until 2030. And you can assume that it will continue thereafter. What's really important, though, and that, that, that's why what Mansur just said is, is absolutely vital to understand, and it goes back to your question about the soft landing. 120 rand a ton is um, the statutory rate. The importance of Chapter 4 in this book is that it explains in detail the level of deductions and allowances that can be applied to reduce that carbon tax liability. And it, it's it's beyond important for taxpayers to become au fait 
with that information because by virtue of that information and by application of that information, that 120 rand a ton, the effective rate comes right down to, um, you know, depending on, on how you can use those allowances between 12 and 24 rand a ton. Sorry, I think the other important point, sorry, another aspect to your question is that even though the statutory rate of carbon tax might increase at a predictable rate, if in the second phase the deductions and allowances are reduced, then you're going to find a higher number of those emissions subject to tax, whereas now the deductions and allowances can shield up to 90% of the emissions from tax. But if that number were to be reduced, you could find that the statutory rate increases predictably but because of the, the reduction in deductions and allowances, the effective rate might then increase at a higher rate. Now, is this revenue neutral in the way it's been designed? Uh, there was a recent OECD paper looking at carbon taxes introduced in developed economies, saying that they, that they were not, in terms of revenue neutrality, designed effectively. And what I mean by that is that if you're going to be taxing on the one hand to change behavior, you should be giving a reduction on the other hand in other tax areas, because what you're trying to do as fiscus is not raise extra income here, you're trying to change behavior. How have we designed this tax, uh, Mansur? What Treasury has stated is that the carbon tax will not be ring-fenced for any specific purposes. Money is raised from the carbon tax will go into the, the, the National Revenue Fund and then be used according to budget priorities which are announced by the Minister in the, in the budget speech and the medium-term expenditure statements each year. Um, so there, there's no um, clear link between raising of a carbon tax and a reduction of, say, a payroll tax or other forms of tax. It will go into the pot together with the other taxes and then be used for government expenditures. The problem with that, uh, and uh, Olivia, let, let's maybe go to you on this point, is that if you're trying to change behavior, uh, that limits the impact of, and certainly the incentive, uh, to, to change behavior. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think this has been a debate point since the tax was first introduced. And everyone wanting quite a hard earmarking of funds. Um, and, and I think the compromise struck was that Treasury agreed to to funnel a lot of the funds on a soft earmarking approach towards the energy efficiency uh, tax incentive. So um, in order for government to pay out on that tax incentive, it would use funds generated from the carbon tax. And so mm. there is a soft incentive for companies to switch to energy efficiency projects um, such as uh, lighting conversion, that type of thing. Um, but you're right, it doesn't necessarily stop the tax from being regressive. And there's a lot of really interesting literature out there on ensuring that those who are most vulnerable to carbon pricing mechanisms, particularly um, those who are poor or indigent households and um, that have quite a strong reliance on electricity pricing going up, for instance, they are the hardest hit, um, not necessarily businesses, but uh, those on the on, uh, the more marginal sides of the economy and um, from a policy point of view um, there's a lot being written about the need for governments to absolutely take positive steps to channel those funds towards for example um, mm. subsidies on um, LPG gas or mm. um, other clean fuel and alternatives um, but, but we were discussing offline there's also difficulties around the IRP and, and, and issues around South Africa's quite restrictive energy regulatory environment and, and that's been quite a tussle for many years and, and that was a, a sticking point around um, the carbon tax for at least a decade 
And uh, we haven't seen a lot of movement in flexibility around um, the Energy Regulation Act and um, authorization of small-scale renewables, uh, that yeah. type of thing. Yeah. And I, I think for this to be a flexible instrument and for it to really achieve its objectives, namely to incentivize and transition to a low-carbon economy, we also need to see other areas of the law uh, relaxing and opening up um, to be more facilitative of, of uh, low energy developments. Now, I recall um, Amplat CEO Chris Griffith uh, towards the back end of last year bemoaning the fact that here you have uh, this, uh, this tax which says we want you to change your behaviour, yet um, in the absence of uh, policy change uh, you have a law that prevents a mining company, for example, from going and procuring renewable energy above a, a megawatt uh, of power. And so all of these things have to happen, as you say, in, in concert for them to be um, impactful. Andrew, just as we end the, the conversation, Chapter 5 of the Concise Guide deals with the administration of the carbon tax in terms of the Customs and Excise Tax Act. And uh, it's a very interesting and curious uh, area of this law that you see environmental lawyers getting involved with, uh, with SARS. As a, as a climate and carbon lawyer, did you learn uh, anything from having to grapple with excise rules uh, that will be helpful for carbon taxpayers? Yes, I'd like to have a stern word with whoever drafted the, the, the Customs and Excise Act about <laughs> prolixity in, in drafting. Um, so, yes, look, I, I must admit that I, I, uh, well, we approached the fact that it was placed under the excise regime and therefore under the carbon tax, sorry, under the, the, the Customs and Excise Act, which needs to be understood. That act itself is 350 pages long. Um, the rules that apply to the act are another 700 pages long and growing, and I kid you not. Um, and then there are at least another 100 or 150 pages of schedules. So clearly not all of those things apply to the Carbon Tax Act. The trick is to understand which parts of those apply to the Carbon Tax Act. And so while we approached it with some trepidation, actually, when you sit back and take a dispassionate view um, of what's going on, there's nothing different from the way you apply your legal skills in understanding and interpreting any other statute. So it's to understand what's the empowering provision where do you go from the empowering provision to a rule? And what does the rule say about how the schedule applies? Um, it is a little bit unfair to expect people who are non-tax practitioners and who are non-au um, fait with that regime suddenly to become familiar with it and to be able to use it to apply um, to a carbon tax liability. But that's what the carbon tax, what the concise guide does. So the guide takes you through all of that, that process and cuts through the chaff to get to what applies to the carbon tax and what does not apply to the carbon tax. Uh, and that really is the bottom line of this uh, concise guide coming as it does at a critical time ahead of that deadline. Is it the 29th uh, or the 30th? Uh, we'll, we'll certainly uh, be scrambling around to find out. It is three o'clock. We know that for certain. And uh, we do know that uh, it is compulsory or you're going to be facing uh, SARS penalties uh, and fines. On that point, thank you very much to our panel and to the authors of the Concise Guide for wading through it for us. Uh, we uh, are going to have to see uh, how compliance goes at this uh, first uh, um, edition of the Carbon Tax. That was Andrew Gilder and Olivia Rumble, both directors at Climate Legal and Mansoor Parker, executive at uh, ENS Africa in the tax department, authors of a new book uh, on the still highly contentious carbon tax, the deadline for submission just days away.